Your Strange Stories UK here for the first podcast of 2021. This is Series 3, Episode 16. It's an incredible story, sad story, and it's quite complicated. And it took place over a number of years, so I've made the podcast into two parts. The case was called The Bride in the Bath Murders. George Joseph Smith was born in Roman Road Bow on the 11th of January 1872. By the time he reached adulthood, he was described as having a fair complexion, brown hair, a ginger moustache, dimpled chin and a large scar on his left arm. His height was 5 foot and 7 inches. By the time you finished listening to this podcast, you will be disgusted by him and his callous disregard for women. I've been making podcasts now for three years, and I think that he's the most unlikable character I've come across. As a child, Smith lived at Lambeth in London, but George was a thief and sent to a remand school at Gravesend at the age of nine, and he stayed there until he was 16. He then went to stay with his mother, but could not stop thieving and getting caught by the police. He served several sentences in jail, the last being six months with hard labour. At the age of 18, Smith is said to have joined the Northamptonshire Regiment of the British Army. He served three years before he was discharged for bad conduct. Smith moved back to London, where he met a woman whose name wasn't given, and he manipulated her to take a position as a servant after he forged references for her and he got her to steal from her employers. Smith was caught by the police trying to sell a stolen watch and served another year at Wormwood Scrubs Prison under the name of Wilson, which was the name he was going under at the time. When he was released, he met up again with a woman, and by September 1897 he forged another reference for her to gain a uh, a position, and she sold a cash box with £115 in it. He left London without the woman and went to Leicester and opened a shop in Russell Square where he carried out the business as a baker and a confectioner and he reinvented himself as George Oliver Love. Smith, or also known as Love, married Caroline Beatrice Thornhill on the 17th of January 1898. Despite her relatives not attending the ceremony, disapproving of her choice of husband. Smith gave a false name, George Oliver Love. I'm not sure if giving a false name invalidated the marriage at the time. It seems not. But the baker shop soon failed, and although his wife wanted to leave him, he forced her to move with him to London, and then he forced her to take work. He supplied her references, and uh, he posed as her recent employer. Smith decided not to work himself. Smith and his wife moved along the south coast from Hastings to Brighton, where his wife would take situations as a maid, then still stole from her employers. Smith was involved in other criminal activity at the time. Eventually, Mrs Love was detained by the police in November 1900. Smith managed to escape, but was arrested in London. His wife testified to get Smith prosecuted for various offences, and he was given a two-year prison sentence with hard labour. 
After his release in October 1902, Smith went looking for his wife in Leicester, but he did not succeed as her family chased him out of town. His wife, Mrs Love, was so terrified by Smith that she left for Canada. She would eventually be summoned back by the police in 1915 to testify against him again. It's difficult to know what Smith did over the next few years, but as we are to discover, he was perfecting a system of exploiting women. Smith was not known to have any male friends. He seemingly did not feel comfortable in their presence. He preferred the company of women where he could act in a, an expansive, superior way and manipulate those who were taken in by him. By 1908, Smith had the record of exploiting women and getting them to work rather than working himself. He pretended to be a wealthy antiques dealer, meeting women, marrying them under a false name, taking their money and then disappearing. It's not known how many victims he exploited and we can assume that the cases were not all reported. But this is the way he made his livelihood for about 15 years. He went through at least eight bigamous marriages, but as I said, there's probably more. One such, one such example was Florence Wilson in Brighton. Florence said that during June 1908 she was residing at Western Road, the main street that connects Brighton to Hove. She was sitting on a bench at the seafront with a friend when a man called George Joseph Smith sat on the seat next to her and started talking about the weather before getting into a conversation with her. She said that he claimed to be a man of means and they made arrangements to meet up the next day at Hovetown Hall. Florence was a widow who had a small business in a shop selling art needlework at the nearby town of Worthing. They became friendly, and Florence introduced her to her landlady, who was also a widow, uh, with the result that Smith would regularly visit. Smith proposed and she gave up work. Smith insisted on seeing her bank book that showed that she had £33. He also asked if she was insured. She wasn't. Smith made Florence draw all of her money out of her account. Smith claimed to be a carpenter, but who now dealt in antiques. They went to London to get married, and they took rooms for a week. Smith said that they were to start up a business together, buying and selling antiques. When Florence had her money in cash, Smith said that he would look after it for her. After all, she didn't have any pockets, and he did. They went for a day out at the Franco-British Exhibition at the um, exhibition at the White City near Shepherd's Bush. After they were there for a few minutes, Smith left Florence saying that he was going to buy a newspaper and would be back shortly. She waited about half an hour, and when he had not returned, she made her way back to Victoria Railway Station, the left luggage, where she found that he had taken all of their belongings including all of her personal belongings, which had a value of possibly £90. She contacted the police and had to stay with her brother, who lived in London. It's unknown how many times Smith used this method of deceit, and under which names. But he soon found other victims, pretending to be a wealthy antiques dealer, persuading women to withdraw their money, and then make off with it. The same year, 1908, Smith set up a shop at Bristol, 389 Gloucester Road, as a second-hand furniture dealer. At 368 Gloucester Road lived Eg Edith Pegler and her mother. Smith was living alone and advertised for a housekeeper. 
Edith applied for the post, got it, and after a few months they married on the 30th of July 1908. They ran the antiques business together. They lived a strange, unsettled life, living in different towns for short periods, as Smith carried out his business of wheeling and dealing and second-hand items, opening junk shops for short periods of time, although, of course, he would have preferred to call them antique shops. Smith also disappeared for long periods of time, by himself, when he claimed to be dealing. Edith Pegler and Smith moved around the country, staying at Bedford, Luton, Croydon, Walthamstow, and various other places. When Smith went off by himself, there was no record of where he was or what he was doing, but it seemed a safe assumption that he was looking for suitable women to dupe. For example, just a year later, in June 1909, a Miss S.A.F. was living in Southampton, working as a clerk. A man called George Rose came to her place of work and they fell into conversation and later went for a walk together. George Rose told her he was travelling the country buying antiques. She said that she did not see him again until the October 1909 when he came to the office again. They formed a friendship, going for walks, and he called for her at her lodgings. And after a fortnight he asked her to marry him, saying he would not take no for an answer and he would follow her until she agreed. She did marry him on the 29th of October 1909 at Southampton Registry Office. George said the only relative he had was an aunt in London. After getting married, they left Southampton by the 11.15 train and went to Clapham Junction, where they took lodgings. On the second day of their marriage, George told her to withdraw all of her money that she had at the bank so they could start an antique shop together and so she took her money out of the bank, which amounted to £260. They withdrew the money at Lavender Hill Post Office. George took control of the money, and he claimed he agreed to take over a shop and he needed to pay for it. That afternoon they visited the National Gallery at Trafalgar Square, and while they were in the gallery, George said he needed to use the toilet, and excused himself, asking his wife to sit down and wait for him. She waited for an hour but never saw him again. When she went back to their lodgings, she discovered that George had been back before her and taken everything. She was left penniless and had to stay with a friend. Including the value of her clothing and jewellery, Smith, or Rose, uh, the money that he stole and the bones that he stole came in total to about £400. After cheating Mrs SAF out of her money, he asked his common-law wife Edith Pegler to join him at South End on Sea, where he purchased a property with the money, 22 Glenmore Street. That cost him £270. He told Edith Pegler that he had the money as a result of buying and selling a seascape by, uh, by Turner, a painting by Turner. If true, that uh, seascape would be worth millions today. The, um, I think the top price for a Turner seascape is about £50 million. Anyhow, these examples given should indicate the character of George Smith, a thieving, deceiving manipulator of women who regularly committed bigamy. It may seem strange that he was able to persuade women to give up everything for him, having known him such a short period of time, including women of a higher social standing than him, 
which was important at that time. However, Smith was very successful at deception and deluding and fleecing women. That's how he made his livelihood. Smith seemed to have a good sense of who would make a good victim, and he seemed to prefer seaside resorts as a hunting ground to meet up with lonely women. Perhaps no longer young, but still craving romance. After deceiving a female, then it never been known how many women were tricked by him. Yes, I know I keep saying this, but I feel there were many more victims. He would always return to Edith Pegler with a trunk full of clothes, which he claimed to have bought second-hand, and the money which he said he had made dealing in antiques. It was later said that Smith had some quality that instantly appealed to women who were easily impressed. He dressed sharply. He claimed a military service in the past, and although a vulgar person, he hid it well, and he claimed to have a love of poetry and art. Smith exploited the fact that there was something of a moral panic over the marriage prospects of women at the time, the time when he was a young man. Women did not have the same opportunities and work that men enjoyed, and were expected to marry and have children at a time when there was a shortage of available men. Census figures show that by 1911, 77% of women that worked were single, 14% were married, and 9% divorced or widowed. And this was before World War I, which was going to result in the deaths of almost a million men and leave many more available men damaged in various ways. In 1911, for those aged between 25 and 29, there were 1,209 single women for every 1,000 men. And the next census in 1921 that was taken showed that half of these women had not married in those 10 years. Longer-term statistics show that 35% of women failed to marry during their reproductive years in the early 20th century. As a result of this, a lot of women lowered their sights as to who their future husband might be, even if, it was thought, uh, even if he was thought of a lower class. And many women would accept a marriage proposal of a man if he seemed in a position to support a family. Going back to late 1909... After cheating Miss SAF out of her money and telling Edith Pegler to join him, Smith did not stay long in Southend, returning to Ashley Down Road, Bristol. He was raising loans on a house in Southend by mortgaging the house in Southend. By the summer of 1910, Smith's resources were dwindling again and he proceeded to search, proceeded to search for another dupe to cheat money from. There was an acquaintance that Smith made in Bristol, a woman named Burdett, aged about 28 years of age. Smith befriended her. She was a governess, and Smith invited her for tea several times with him and Edith, and a close intimacy involved. Smith said he was going to insure her as an investment, and insurance agents were called to discuss the matter. Edith Pegler seemed against the investment, but Smith was much in favour. But in the end, he did cancel the policy. It seemed an odd incident, as if Smith was experimenting with his control over women. During the summer of 1910, in Lee Woods at Clifton, Bristol, Smith encountered Beatrice Constant Annie Mundy, a 33-year-old woman who was well provided for after her father's death, death by a trust fund. Beatrice, or Bessie, was a trusting woman who was 
known to be hopeless with money, or managing money, when her father died. And when her father did die, he, she was persuaded by concerned relatives to invest her fortune of £2,500 in gilt-edged securities and live off the interest. She drew £8 a month with a small amount saved and available for emergencies. Uh, this enabled her not to touch her capital. This was a voluntary settlement that Beatrice, or Bessie, entered into in order to protect her future. Bessie's family secretly thought she was foolish and weak-minded, an easy prey for someone like Smith. Bessie seemed to lead her life without direction, drifting from boarding house to boarding house, or staying with friends. But her family were not overduly worried, as the trust protected her future, and she would always have an income. The husband couldn't touch it if she decided to get married. Smith soon charmed his way into Bessie's confidence and affection, and they became engaged to her after just a few days. Smith was calling himself Mr Williams, and on the 22nd of August he and Bessie travelled to Weymouth and took rooms at 14 Rodwell Avenue. And on the 26th of August, Smith and Bessie married at the registry office, becoming Mr and Mrs Williams. Smith claimed to be a 35-year-old bachelor who was a picture rest restorer. Mr. Williams, or Smith if you prefer, had soon worked out the financial affairs of Bessie and had ascertained that apart from the £8 a month, 136 had built up in the emergency fund, which was available for Bessie to draw on at any time. On their wedding day, Smith had instructed a solicitor in Weymouth to write to the trustees of the fund for a copy of Bessie's father's will. He soon realised that he could not touch the capital but he could get Bessie's, Bessie to demand the £136. Smith would have supposed that Bessie's family would, would have assumed, correctly, that he married her to get her inheritance. So he always communicated with them through a solicitor. Smith also told the lie that he was unaware that his wife had a fortune until, until after he was married to her. Bessie told her family that she had known her husband for six months and wished him to have money for, from her to set up as a picture restorer in Weymouth. She requested the emergency money, the £136, and she asked for it to be sent to the couple. By the 13th of September, Smith had acquired £136 and he promptly absconded, stealing Bessie's clothing, leaving her without possessions and money. Smith wrote Bessie a letter saying that He'd caught a sexually transmitted disease from her, and that was the reason that he was leaving. Smith returned to Edith Pegler at Bristol, telling her that he had been travelling around the country on antique business. Smith and Edith then travelled to South End together, where they set up an antique junk shop and stayed for four months before moving again to Barking Road, Walthamstow, and then back to Bath Road and Bristol. In each place, Smith carried on with his antique dealing. In 1912, after being in Bristol for seven, seven weeks, Smith decided to leave in order to go around the country dealing again. Well, this is what he told Edith. Smith left, left, left Edith to manage by herself. He would be gone for five months, and Edith could only contact him by writing to a contact address, which would pass the letter on to Smith. 
Smith told Edith that he did not want her prying into his business or knowing where he was. It was not a woman's business to know what a man was doing, Smith said. The antique business did not make much money, and during that time Smith was away, she had to sell the business for a few pounds and move back in with her mother. Unfortunately for Bessie Mundy, who thought that she was Mrs Williams, she was to meet up with Smith again. Bessie was staying at Western Supermare at a boarding house named Norwood, run by Mrs Tuckett. Bessie met with Smith on the seafront, a pure coincidence, on the 14th of March 1912. Mrs Tuckett reported that Bessie was very excited, although she felt there was something sinister about Smith, as he reconciled with his wife, saying that it was a dreadful mistake. He had not contracted disease after all, and he claimed that he had been searching for her for a year and he had to use the money that he ran off with to pay an outstanding loan. The next move of Smith was to contact Bessie's relatives to tell them of their reconciliation, with a view to try to extract more money. Bessie and Smith left Western Supermare and travelled around. They stayed at Woolwich. That's where Smith wrote to Pegler saying that he was going on a visit to Canada and may be away for some months. The Williamses then moved to Hearn Bay in Kent. They arrived on May the 20th, 1912. Smith rented a property at 80 High Street, Hearn Bay. There were some difficulties in doing this, as the agent, a Mrs Carrie Rapley, was suspicious of Smith, who could not provide references or proper banking details. He was going under the false name of Mr Williams. Eventually he took the property after agreeing to pay two months' rent in advance. Some further money had accumulated under Bessie's trust, and £33 was sent to Bessie, which paid for the rent and the furniture they, they required. When at Herne Bay, Smith employed solicitors to work out a method whereby he could get Bessie's capital, finding out that the only way he could access it was if Bessie died, and her estate would then go to her next of kin, if that's what she stated in her will. Smith learnt of this on the July, uh, July the 2nd, and within a week he and his wife made mutual wills, naming each other as beneficiaries. Note that Bessie had a small fortune and Smith had nothing. This was, as you may have guessed, Bessie's death warrant. Smith also made it quite clear to his solicitors that they were not to give anyone details about him. He said he was a very private man and it was no one's business but his own. On July the 8th, 1912, Smith purchased a bath and took his wife to see a Dr French, saying that she had a fit the previous day. Dr French worked in the town where there were 12 doctors and he was the least experienced and had no experience of epileptic or any other kind of fitting in patients. Dr French having only recently qualified as a doctor. Dr French prescribed a bromide of potassium, a general sedative, and a nanophrodisiac, which suppressed sexual desire. Bessie did not recollect having a fit. She'd never had a fit in the past. But on Friday the 12th of July, Smith called Dr French again to examine his wife, claiming again she had a fit, unbeknown to her. French thought that Bessie seemed in perfect health, but again prescribed bromide of potassium, although Bessie had not recalled having anything that could be described as a fit. It seemed that the doctor and Bessie just accepted Smith's word that she had suffered a fit. On that same night, 
the 12th of July, Bessie wrote to her uncle saying that she had been receiving the best medical treatment and how wonderful her husband was. It would appear this letter having been dictated by Smith, although of course we'll never know. The next day, Saturday July the 13th, Dr French received a message at 8am asking him to come at once. Bessie was dead. When French arrived, he found Bessie lying in the bath on her back with her head under the water. Her right hand was clutching a piece of soap. The doctor tried briefly artificial respiration, but it was far too late. Her death was reported to the coroner and an inquest was arranged for Monday the 15th of July. Smith wrote to Bessie's uncle who lived in Wiltshire and her brother who lived in Dorset. The brother immediately wrote to the coroner demanding a post-mortem. His letter was ignored. The inquest went ahead on the Monday. Smith crying crocodile tears, impersonating a bereaved husband. The only witnesses at the inquest being Smith and Dr French. No difficult questions were asked, such as why would it have taken 20 trips from the, bu- from the kitchen up the stairs to an empty room with a bath? This supposed to be undertaken by Bessie, who had been visited by the doctor the previous night for having a fit. During this time, the husband, Smith, was out buying fish for supper. So let's just focus on that for a moment. It would take 20 buckets to fill the bath two-thirds full. The tap ran quite slowly. It would take a minute and a half to fill a bucket... Two minutes to walk up the bath and empty it, then come down again. So, three and a half minutes a bucket for the bath, two-thirds full, it would take 42 minutes. Smith told the inquest that he left the property at 7.30 and came back at 8, then found her dead. But the coroner did not examine the possibility of this. He hadn't made up a timeline. Also, there was no examination of the bath, Measurements were not taken which would have revealed that Bessie was 5 foot 8 or 9 inches tall and a well-developed, while the extreme length of the bath was 5 feet. Bernard Spilsby was later to point out that if somebody had lifted the legs of Bessie while she was in the bath, the effect would be to force the trunk and head into the water and unconsciousness and rapid silent death would soon occur. A person with her legs held up would be powerless against a stronger person and Bessie's leg were both found to be against the end of the bath, suggesting that this is what happened. The coroner missed these clues and in effect was just going through the motions, being convinced by Smith and Dr French's testimonies. The verdict then was death by misadventure, drowning caused by an epileptic seizure but as mentioned there was no real deconstructing of events and in retrospect an inquest can be seen as little more than going through the motions rather than a serious examination of an unexpected death. The burial of Bessie was the next day on the 16th of July. It had been just a week since the will had been made. The funeral was as cheap as possible with Bessie going into a public grave without even a headstone. None of Bessie's family were advised of the funeral date In any way, it was too late for them to attend. Smith didn't even pay for the bath in which he killed Bessie. The shop owner they'd bought it from was asked if he would take it back. Not that he had much choice, as Smith had not yet paid for it. The undertaker that buried Bessie was the man who sold Smith furniture for the house at 80 High Street. He later bought it all back from Smith. 
When the, underca- when the undertaker came to the house, he found Bessie's body just lying on the floor next to the bath. He measured the body, the tip of the toes to the top of the head, in order to supply a coffin. She was five foot nine inches, and the coffin would be for a body five foot eleven inches, which was the normal ratio. He said that the funeral was moderately carried out at, an expense, at the expense of seven guineas. No grave was purchased, which meant that there would be no headstone or anything to show where Bessie was at rest. There was a brass plate on the coffin with Bessie's name. The undertaker said that he knew Bessie before she died. He delivered bread to the house, and Mrs Bessie Williams always seemed in good health. She was a nice dark-looking woman, medium-sized and very friendly. Smith gave up the house at 80 High Street, Herne Bay, within two days of the inquest and wrote to Edith Pegler to meet him at Margate. He told her that he'd been to Canada and picked up a Chinese image which he'd sold for a £1,000. Smith had inherited £2,571, 13 shillings and sixpence from Bessie's estate. He went into Smith's account under the name of Williams at a bank in Bath, and Smith withdrew it and untraceable gold from the bank. Smith then bought seven houses in Bristol, for which he paid 2180 later selling six of them for a loss, although it was an early form of money laundering he was carrying out. Edith and Smith then moved to Tunbridge Wells for a while to trade in antiques. In the name of George Joseph Smith, an account was opened at Landport, Portsmouth, and £1,300 deposited into that account. This was during October 1913, after which Smith spent a couple of months with Edith Pegler in Margate, before leaving her, telling her that he was going to go travelling around Spain looking for antiques. What Smith actually did was took lodgings at Southsea in Portsmouth. Smith living in Southsea was going to be bad news for someone. While worshipping at the Methodist Church in Southsea, Smith met Alice Burnham, She was said to be a stout but healthy young woman of 25 years of age who was employed as a nurse to an elderly gentleman named Mr Holt. Within days, Smith persuaded Alice to marry him. They were engaged and Smith showed her his bank account, his books and private papers, showing that he was financially sound. As so he was after inheriting Bessie's money. Smith was now calling himself a gentleman of independent means. On October the 15th, 1913, Alice wrote to her family, telling of her engagement. Alice and Smith journeyed to the home of her parents at Aston Clinton on October the 25th, 1913, being met at Tring Railway Station by her father with a pony and trap. They remained a couple of weeks until the 31st of October, but it was not a successful visit. Alice may have been taken in by Smith, but the family saw through him for what he was. It was said that the Burnham family found Smith's behaviour so objectionable that he was told to leave the fam- to, told to leave the house. The family said they could not sleep with him in the house. Smith avoided Mr Burnham as much as possible when he realised he could not win them over as he'd done with Alice, their daughter. Despite the hostility of the family, Alice was determined to marry Smith and she and Smith returned to Southsea and married on the 4th of November, 1913, at Portsmouth Registry Office. Smith gave his true name. He claimed he was 40 years of age. It should be noted that unbeknown to Smith, Alice had inquired at Somerset House 
but found no trace of Smith's birth. But she kept it to herself. Smith had been forced to use his real name with Alice, as he had met her while he was staying at South Sea, and that was the name that he uh, was using at the time. After marriage, Smith did what he could to get Alice's money. He had drawn out the money she had in her post office savings account and told her father to afford him the £100 he was looking after for his daughter, which was the result of her savings and gifts from the father over a number of years. Smith was threatening legal action if it was not forthcoming. Mr Burnham clearly realised that Smith was only interested in money and not his daughter, and he tried to stall for time, as he was concerned that his daughter had married a man who she hardly knew. Mr Burnham asked Smith about his past, and Smith replied by postcard, In answer to your application regarding my parentage, my mother was a bus horse, my father a cab driver, my sister a rough rider over the Arctic regions, my brothers were all gallant sailors on a steamroller. This is the only information that I give to those who are not entitled to ask such questions. Smith sent a later postcard, slightly threatening to Burnham, saying, Sir, I don't know what your next move is to be, but take my advice and be very careful. Smith received Alice's money from Mr Burnham on the 1st of December. On the 10th of December, Smith and Alice decided to take a short holiday in Blackpool, a sort of belated honeymoon trip. In the lodgings they had been staying at Southsea for the past five weeks, they had access to a bathroom with a bath, but they had never used it. That's to say that for five weeks they never used the bath, according to the landlady. When they arrived at Blackpool, the first property they visited, a house owned by the landlady, Mrs Marsden, they insisted on having a bath, and Smith did, uh, didn't take the rooms there because there was no bath. So they were directed to a Mrs Crossley's boarding house, which did have a bathroom. It seemed very important for Smith to uh, have a property with a bath in. When Smith arrived at Blackpool with his wife on the Wednesday afternoon of the 10th of December 1913, they arrived from Portsmouth. He claimed that his wife was suffering from head pain, so he, doctored to, he took her to see a Dr Billings. The doctor said that there didn't seem to be anything wrong with her. He described her as a short, pale woman who was extremely fat, but from a medical point of view she seemed healthy. He prescribed tablets for a headache, and for her stomach she may, she may have been suffering constipation. The headache tablets were aspirin, caffeine and heroin, and uh, bicarbonate of soda tablets to help the stomach. Mrs Crossley, the landlady, was to remember an incident between Smith and Alice that she saw. Alice was writing a postcard, and Smith was standing behind her saying, oh, I shouldn't put that, virtually dictating the postcard for her. This was probably a postcard that she was later, that would be later received by her mother, saying that she was in Blackpool and how happy she was with her new husband. Smith claimed that Alice complained again on the 13th of December of pains in the head, so he took her out for a walk, and she said she felt better, and she was going to take a bath. Smith said that he would go out. The landlady, Mrs Crossley, was sat downstairs in the kitchen with her daughter, also called Alice, and her son-in-law. While Alice Burnham Smith took her bath, the kitchen was directly under the bathroom. 
Water started to come dripping through the ceiling. Then Smith appeared at the door of the kitchen, saying he'd bought some eggs for breakfast the next morning. Smith then started talking about motor engines and other things that were happening in Blackpool. After a while, he went to the stairs and called up to his wife. Getting no answer, Smith ascended the stairs, and then he shouted down to Mrs Crossley, "'Send for Dr Billing!' When Billing arrived, he found Alice sitting in the narrow end of the bath with her head back towards the tap, with Smith supporting her with his arm. The bath was full of water just half an inch from the rim. Mrs Crossley came up the stairs before the doctor arrived, thinking that Smith had called her. She said that when she saw Alice's head under the water, Smith pulled it above the water and held it there until the doctor arrived. Then Alice was lifted out of the bath, but by that time she was dead. The doctor asked why she wasn't lifted out of the bath before he arrived. Smith said he was unable to do that. And when he was asked why he didn't pull a plug out to drain the water, Smith said he didn't think of that. It was later suggested that Smith wanted others to see how deep the bath had been, as he wanted the death to appear accidental. When the bath was fully drained and cleaned the next day, a quantity of hair was found suggesting that some kind of struggle, although no comment was made at the time. When Bernard Spilsbury and Dr Wilcox later discussed the case, they could not understand how a woman fainting in the bath could get into the position that Alice was found dead. On the afternoon of Alice's death, Smith had returned to Mrs Crossley's boarding house and drank a bottle of whisky, and spent the afternoon playing the piano. His behaviour over the next couple of days was to upset the Crossley family. Smith refused to pay for food given to... Alice's father and brother who came to, to stay and it was a great difficulty that they made him pay for his own stay at the house. Smith's comments also caused upset his apparent disregard for his dead wife. For example, he refused to buy her a decent coffin and when the landlady's son-in-law said even if he had no money at all he'd always make sure his wife had a decent coffin, Smith said Once they're dead, they're done with. The inquest was held a couple of days after that, and Alice, a couple of days after Alice had been found dead. The death certificate had been made out by Dr. Billings. He said Alice that had died in the bath on the 11th of December 1913, drowned after probably being seized with a fit or a faint. It was ruled by the coroner as being the result of heart disease. Dr. Billings saying that Alice was very fat and he would expect fatty degeneration of the of the heart. The coroner accepted that she had a heart disease without even there being a post-mortem. The coroner also accepted Smith's statements that she had a history of having fits. It later turned out that she last had a fit 15 years previously when she was 10 years of age. But this was signed off by the coroner, John Parker, coroner for Lancashire, after the inquest was held on the 13th of December 1913. The inquest was over in half an hour and many points of suspicion were not examined. For example, Dr Billing had noticed that Smith had removed his coat and pulled up his sleeve before raising his dead wife's head from the water. Also, the impossible position of the body and the quantity of hair found at the water was not mentioned. And again, the coroner appeared to be in a rush to attend the next inquest he was due to perform. He said he had a train, had to catch a certain train to be there on time. The inquest was held before the Burnham family could attend. 
they were advised of the inquest on the day that it took place. This seemingly part of Smith's plan to kill his wife on the Saturday, get the inquest and funeral over before the family had a chance to attend either of uh, these things and ask any awkward questions. The Burnham family had not yet discovered that their daughter had been married on the 4th of November, as the postcard that Alice had sent them had not arrived by the time they had left, after they had received message saying that Alice was very ill, and then another saying that she died while taking a bath at 16th Regent Road, Blackpool, the home of Mrs Crossley. The Burnham surprised Smith arriving on the Regent's Road address. They arrived on the Sunday morning at about 10am. They had not sent word that they were arriving. Burnham said to Smith that he might have sent them a card informing him of the inquest on the previous day. But Smith replied there had not been time for that. The funeral was held on a Monday. Burnham and his son attended along with the daughter and son-in-law of Mrs Crossley. After the funeral, Smith said he had to leave for South End, oh, sorry, South Sea by train immediately. Burnham asked about his daughter's belongings. Smith took down the address of the daughters of Mr Burnham, or the other daughters of Mr Burnham, indicating that he was intending to send them onto, the, onto them, but they never arrived. Mrs Crosley was not fooled by Smith's crocodile tears, and when he left her house after the funeral, she shouted out, Crippin! as he left. Crippen had recently been found guilty of the murder of his wife, and clearly Crossley thought that Smith had done the same. Mr Burnham was later to find out that his daughter had made a will on the 8th of December, three days before her death, leaving everything to Smith. Then he discovered that Smith had insured her life of £500. When Mr Burnham arrived home, he found a postcard from his daughter Alice saying, Dear Mother, we arrived here on Wednesday. I've again suffered bad headaches. My husband does all he possibly can. The undertaker called by Smith uh, told of how he measured Alice while she was lying on the floor of the bathroom. Smith had told him that he wanted the funeral done as cheaply as possible and usually a public grave. And he wanted it done as cheaply as possible and as quickly as possible as he wanted to get it over with. He actually wanted the body to be buried on Sunday, but this was not possible, as there was no interns on a Sunday in Blackpool. The undertaker saw Smith again on the Sunday, half an hour after the Burnhams had arrived. Smith asked if he could have a private grave after all, as the, families, the, uh, the family of his wife were going to attend the funeral after all. The undertaker said it would take another day to organise that. So Smith said, just put her in the public grave, but don't tell the family. The total cost of the funeral was £6, three shillings and sixpence. Smith was to later claim that he was unaware and surprised that his wife had made out a will in his favour three days before her death. Smith returned to South Sea on, uh, to the 80 Kimberley Road address, where he sold all of Alice's belongings and left to join either Pegler at Bristol for Christmas where he told her they'd been in Spain and done fairly well. On the 14th of January 1914, the insurance company sent Smith a cheque for £506. Alice had about £30 in the post office and £100 from her father. Smith had also made Alice write to her sister, demanding back a £10 wedding gift that she had been given. So in total, Smith made about £646 from the murder of Alice.
Also, he discovered a new ploy of insuring his victims now to ensure a bigger payout. Smith stayed with Edith Pegler for some weeks before starting his wanderings again on the south coast of England. Well, that concludes part one. I'll post part two within the week. And uh, so all it remains to do for the time being is to thank you all for listening and to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>